0: Hi, this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. Startups, venture capital, and Silicon Valley have taken on their own mythology in today's culture. Stories of breakthrough technologies, spectacular failures, and multi-billion dollar valuations have only fueled people's interest. But the flip side of that story is that of the $48 billion in venture capital investments that were made in 2014 alone, the vast majority fail. In this edition of the podcast, we discuss the life of a startup CFO with Mark McLeod, currently founder of the advisory firm SurePath Capital Advisors. Mark has over 14 years of experience as a financial executive in the venture capital arena, as well as a CFO of some leading established companies. Great, Mark. So really appreciate you taking the time. And I I just want to give the listeners a little bit of your background. You know, I know you're a sure path right now, but just sort of the condensed version of, of where you came from and how you got to where you are today.
1: Sure. Yeah, happy to do that and a pleasure to be on the show. So, I am a CPA by training. I spent a total of, I guess, six years in that world. I think it's important to mention that I made a a very deliberate decision from the beginning to avoid Big Four. Uh, For some reason, I was just drawn to the entrepreneurial side of things. I wanted to be closer to owner managers. And so, the first CPA firm I joined had, uh, you know, nine partners, 90 staff, and you know, real diversity of clients and I got to work with owners from the earliest days and uh, that was, I think, really important to my development and I would say my entire career choice since then has been built around, you know, being an entrepreneur and working with entrepreneurs. So, so I spent a bunch of time there across, so in public accounting across three firms in the latter years, moved away from assurance to more kind of corporate finance and advisory work. Right. In the... uh, my first operating gig uh, was doing a turnaround of a chain of skateboard and snowboard stores. This <laughs> was in kind of the mid-90s, around the time that uh, people were moving from skiing to snowboarding, and inline skating was starting to be a thing, and this whole notion of extreme sports uh, was kind of very popular, and so it just felt like their business had a lot of potential. It was a client of mine in my last firm, and so I was very close with them. And, uh, you know, the big issue in retail is cash flow management, or I guess really inventory management. You know, if you, especially in a hard goods business where there's a long lead time to where you have to commit to goods, uh, which which is absolutely the case there. And, um, you know, if you don't, um, if you don't make enough inventory commitments, then you might forego sales. Whereas if you you make too much, then you end up having massive working capital issues. And this company was very firmly in the latter camp. I should mention that we also owned a restaurant, so we were absolutely in the worst industries from the point (laughs) of view of survival rate. Uh, Ironically, the restaurant is still around today. Uh, But we ended up uh, kind of packaging off uh, those stores sort of a piecemeal basis over, uh, I guess, a two-year period, but really amazing kind of first industry experience. And Mm then from there, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I parked myself in a CPA firm for six months, and this was a pretty unique firm where half of the client base was kind of high net worth individuals, and this was in the late 90s, kind of right around the time of the dot-com boom, and um, I ended up joining... A client that was in the high tech, high tech venture backed software company helped them raise their first venture round, and then joined as their first finance leader and never looked back. So (laughs) from 1999, I guess till 2012 uh, or 2011, sorry, I was CFO for one venture backed software startup after another, and had the whole range of outcomes. You know, from a company going public to generating you know 10x return on capital to Writing off 11 million in capital uh, and sort of everything in between. And in the last two years, started to do two things. One was to take on multiple startups at a time. And uh, the second, so sort of like an in term CFO thing, uh, which is really needed in the startup landscape, because a mm. company can become pretty big before it really needs a full-time finance leader. Right, And then I also started to specialize in recurring revenue businesses. So it was a big shift that was in full swing then, and even more so now, moving away from selling perpetual license software to just selling subscriptions to mm. software the cloud, and uh, started to develop a real specialty in those businesses and um, and still have that specialty today. And so, anyway, along the way, when I was doing the seed stuff, became very close with a seed stage fund in Montreal named uh, Montreal Startup. Um, uh, a bunch of their portfolio companies were clients of mine, and I uh, became so close with them that I joined them to help them raise. That Montreal Startup was really a sort of a test fund. Right. It was inspired by a seed stage fund in the U.S. called First Round Capital. And uh, we basically imported that model into Canada and tried to see if we could make it work. Uh, We could. And so I helped them raise uh, Real Ventures, a $50 million fund, which uh, at the time uh, was Canada's largest and most active seed stage venture fund. Hmm. And they've gone on to raise a $100 million fund too, so kind of doing more of the same. So I spent three years there and then left uh in 2013 uh, really because um, as much as we were having success you know the venture capital industry is quite messed up you know the fact is three to five percent of venture funds generate consistent returns for their limited partners fund right. after fund after fund and um, if you're kind of a type A annually retentive CPA then you actually want to have more than a three to five percent chance of success in anything that you do and so it just wasn't <laughs> (laughs) really comfortable-looking limited partners in the eye and telling them that I knew how to make money where, you know, most fund managers, who I assume are very smart people, did not. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, I'd been advising a company... Independent of real ventures, I've been advising a, a very prominent Canadian startup named FreshBooks, uh, which competes in the kind of small business accounting space. And in sure. fact, yeah, only its cool. QuickBooks franchise has more subscribers in North America than they do. Right, right. And um, I've been bugging the founder for years to raise venture capital and uh, kind of go for it. And anyway, I joined him in 2013 and uh, helped him do that. And... Uh, uh, had a really great run at FreshBooks over two years, uh, closing a very large venture around helping them get into payments as a line of business. And, um, you know, FreshBooks has been around for over 10 years, they're looking to be around for the next 10 and, you know, becoming a, you know, a very large standalone market leading company. And at some point, that means uh, going public. Especially right. because when you sell to SMB, there are far fewer strategic buyers for your company than if you sell to enterprise or 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 even consumer. Yeah. And I knew that going in. I was actually uh, quite clear with the CEO that should we go down the public path, um, then it's that's kind of not. Re- where my heart lies you know being a CFO of a public company is absolutely not on my bucket list and uh, I'm happy to expand on that but yeah we uh, are okay In any event um Long story short, that was kind of the next big, not that FreshBooks is going public anytime soon, but as I'm sure you know, it's a, a non-trivial process to prepare right. to go public, and they want it. I, I just felt that before even beginning on that path, they should just have someone, first of all, who's done it before, but at the very least, if a person hasn't done it before, they should be deeply passionate about it because it's a tough process. And so I remained very close with the company, but I left the company uh, in April of this year to found SurePath Capital Partners.
0: That's, that's, that's quite a career. And I wanted to tie the beginning of your career to where you are right now with two statements you made. The first is where you said you, you definitely, no matter what, didn't want to work for the big four. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And then uh, you just said that you definitely, it's definitely not in your bucket list list to be a public company CFO. So uh, I guess the question is why those two statements and how do they tie together?
1: Yeah, it's funny. Um, I definitely didn't have this insight at the beginning of my career, but uh, it's funny. I have a very client service orientation uh, mm. I, I'm great at providing service to clients and being of service to clients but I'm not great at having a boss okay uh, it's that makes sense mm. and so yeah, I very much love kind of I think it's just inspiration from working with entrepreneurs for so long so again it wasn't a, an insight that informed my career I think it was just an instinct at the beginning of the career that more autonomy was better than less Right, And, um, you know, whereas now it's very clear that, uh, you know, while I am very happy to be of great service to clients, I need to be uh, kind of in charge of my own company. And so uh, very, very much, you know, if you... If you think of kind of if I were to encapsulate you know my entire career strategy in in kind of one sentence it would be to be a big fish in a small pond (laughs) and uh, you know by going to a regional firm I got to become uh, you know essential to my clients and known to the partners far earlier in my career Right. you know my very first operating gig was leading finance not being part of a finance team my very first time in a venture-backed startup was, as the finance leader and in fact the number two to the CEO Mm -hmm. and never and I'll tell you I made a crap ton of mistakes along the way as a result you know I was in my 20s at the height of the dot com boom and you know had no prior startup experience whatsoever Um, and just kind of figured it out as I went but absolutely you know and and I also would say this kind of big fish in a small pond thing um, also relates to my choice of where to live you know i think we all know that in high tech you know silicon valley is kind of the mecca and right. the vast majority of activity is down there and i've had plenty of occasions to move there over the years you know either with companies that have acquired my companies or for other reasons and i've always chosen to stay in canada uh, so that I could have more impact, and uh, and so it's yeah, big fish in a small pond is, is the strategy in a nutshell. Does,
0: does so does that strangely translate to your choice of not being a public company CFO? I mean, it would seem that's the ultimate goal of, of historically of a lot of, of up and coming financial executives. They say you know I'm going to be the CFO of this, but is it is it an investor thing? Is it? A, I mean, what's your rationale there?
1: Well, you know, I'll pretend I. Oh, I'll admit, rather, I don't know everything about the public markets, because I haven't been a public company CFO, but uh, I was the first interim CFO at a company named Shopify, that's one of Canada's oh, yeah. most successful uh, SaaS companies, and went public recently. And uh, I'm still technically an advisor to that company, but they are long past needing my advice. But anyway, I remain close with them, and uh, their current CFO, Russ Jones, came in full time after I left. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've stayed very close with them and with him. And you know, first of all, just you know the process that he's gone through over the last 24 months to help them, uh, uh, you know, complete a very successful IPO was non-trivial. Right. And uh, um, you know. So- second, and I think this is true of all executive roles over time, but certainly as of the CFO role, you know, the bigger the company gets, the more investors you have, the more the role is just a communications role. Mm-hmm. You're not truly operating. You're not in there with your sleeves and the muck, you know, doing things. You're communicating. You're updating investors. You're doing the kind of 12 to 15 week dog and pony show with the quarterlies. You're getting pressure to give guidance. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that is somewhat removed from the actual kind of essentials of building and running a company. Mm -hmm. Albeit very important stuff. Right. And uh, I just didn't feel that that was for me.
0: Yeah.
1: I had, whereas conversely, I had huge passion for the early stage and for uh, the private markets versus the public markets. And I'll, I'll tell you a story. So back w- when I was an auditor, hmm. I was so enamored with venture capital that uh, I had, this client I ended up joining while we were their auditor. Um, I was so enamored with venture capital that when we had the draft statements, I called up the institutional VC to see if he had any comments on the notes. I knew full well. That he didn't even read the stuff. I just right. to talked to him, you know. And uh, anyway, that guy is uh, David Lowey, who now runs Google Capital, their late stage <laughs> investment fund. And we've had a good joke about that uh, over the years. But um, yeah, I, I continue to have a huge passion about venture capital. Even though I've chosen to not be a venture capitalist anymore, as right. you know, we believe in the role of VC. I've developed my relationships with the venture community over a couple of decades now, and whereas I have absolutely no relationships with the public markets, from what I can tell, the public markets are fair weather friends. Whereas you know, like it or not, you know, when a venture capitalist invests in your company, it's a it's a multi year relationship. You know, so, yeah. yeah. I
0: was, going to, I was going to follow up on that. I mean, you've been in the venture space since the beginning. Um, you know, you know, and you, and you talk about that. Has it significantly changed since you started? I mean, is it still a relationship business? Has it always been that way?
1: Oh. The venture capital business? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's fundamentally changed, I'd say, probably several times. You know, there's still some part of Of it haven't changed it's still overwhelmingly white middle upper class males right Um, so it definitely doesn't reflect the diversity that you see in the rest of the world Hmm. Uh, but it's become less clubby in the sense that you know the first generation of venture capitalists were kind of Finance people like myself with with you know Ivy League MBAs and you know the right pedigree, right? Uh, and that's definitely changed. You know, you see like today's entrepreneurs don't want to raise from finance people; they want to raise from people with operating backgrounds who can help them build their business and who have been in the trenches and therefore can relate to you know the trials and tribulations of creating a company out of nothing. Mm-hmm. So the background of of people has changed a lot and then you know back when i started doing startups you know it was very costly to get going you know open source software was not as kind of abundant as it is today you had to purchase really expensive databases from Oracle. I mean, you needed three million bucks to do anything. Whereas today, you know, it's never been cheaper or easier to start a company. Now, conversely, it's never been harder or more expensive to build a market leader because there's so much noise in the market today. Right, right. But um, there's just tons of activity. And so what you see is more and more kind of new fund managers entering at earlier and earlier stages. So we don't just have seed stage funds. Now we have micro seed and now we have pre-seed and we have accelerators and incubators. And two years ago, you know, accelerators were the new black. It was just like every street corner seemed to have an accelerator on it. Right. Uh, so in the same way as there's no barriers to creating startups, there seem to be fewer and fewer barriers to creating creating venture funds, and so there are more venture funds. That said, though, it's still the same three to five percent of fund managers that deliver the premium returns year after year after year. You know, it's still Sequoia, Bessemer, Benchmark. You know, the old names that deliver the goods. I guess,
0: given that that there's a lot more, you know, earlier states, smaller uh, sort of startups. At what point does it make sense for somebody who wants to be in that space and is a you know, a financial executive? Where, where do they come in? Where, where do you suggest they start?
1: So, for someone who wants to have a career inside of a venture capital firm,
0: yeah, as a but you know on the finance side, on the uh, you yeah. know, on that side.
1: So there's three paths. One is sort of bottom up. So all kind of firms of a certain size have an. End analyst or an associate program so someone who's maybe done an undergrad in finance uh, could enter into the analyst program that's usually kind of no more than two years then they send you back out into the wild to get some operating experience but you can remain close with the firm you know i would say someone who's really close really loves that firm could do two years years stint as an analyst go into a portfolio company in a finance or operating role hopefully do some good things and then come back in as a partner right. so that's one potential path and another is kind of you know my path where you just have a whole bunch of operating exposure you've ended up raising a bunch of venture capital over the years as a result you become very close to partners and then at a certain point be asked to be one
0: mm-hmm.
1: Uh, And then I'd say the third path is really kind of the back office. So all venture funds have obviously, you know, they manage millions on behalf of their limited partners. They need to have very sophisticated financial operations of their own and so all venture funds over a certain size will have a CFO and a finance team but you know help raise the money do investor reporting and portfolio evaluation and all of these other things and so that's that's another path as well
0: what t- putting your hat on as you know as an advisor now and when you were an investor um, uh, given that, you know, the, the products, if the products are the same, the, you know, the, the strategies are the same, can the finance leaders make a difference? Uh, when, what do you look for, the, for that, those personality traits and financial leaders in portfolio companies or um, companies you're looking to advise? What, what sort of personality traits
1: do you seek out? So, finance leaders in in an operating company, yeah. not in a venture fund. Yes. Yeah, so, I would say. So, it's funny. Like, as I mentioned before, a company, a startup, can go a long way before needing a full time CFO. Mm-hmm. You know, back we sold a company named Tungle to BlackBerry a few years back, and uh, I was still the CFO of that company at the same time as I was a general partner in Real Ventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it can be done on a part time basis. But that aside, um. You know, when a company is not fundraising, so when it is fully funded and between venture rounds, the, the the finance role inside a startup, especially at the early stage, is actually pretty simple. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your major expenses payroll, you've got lots of visibility into expenses, you know, more and more software is sold. The uh, kind of visible subscriptions versus lumpy enterprise sales and so it's easy to get your head around kind of deferred revenue and revenue prediction and all that stuff and so the point of all this is that because the core finance role is relatively simple other than during fundraisings uh, you know what I look for is finance leaders who are deeply operational Mm -hmm. and who can add value beyond the finance function. And, and, you know, back when I was doing full time CFO work, you know, really the role I tried to play was to be the right hand to the CEO and to relieve the CEO of whatever he or she was not good at and allowing them to focus on what they were great at so as an example if the ceo was a technical person then how do i take on uh, operating or biz dev aspects uh, in order to enable that ceo to just build and ship great product conversely if that ceo is just a great deal maker and you know bring. In huge deals, then how do I get that person out of the building, closing those deals, and feeling comfortable that everything else is still happening while they're away? So you know you have to be a bit of a chameleon, I think, uh, and you need to be to be able to be operational, kind of way beyond finance. And you know, over the years, I've run HR departments, customer support departments, IT—you know—a whole bunch of things that, on the surface, have nothing to do with finance. Do you?
0: think, uh, you know, some of the schools that are out there are pushing out those type of graduates that can fill that operational role or, you know, even in is industry, pushing out those sort of executives that can fill that operational role?
1: I don't think so. I think that uh, certainly, you know, in terms of pure finance education, uh, again, I got my undergrad and MBA a long time ago. Mm. But, uh, you know, I got my MBA as an example by not going to my finance classes (laughs) because I was already in industry then and the stuff that they were teaching and these very complex DCF models, I knew nobody ever did. Mm. And so I basically just showed up to my exams and uh, did fine. But so I didn't find, you know, that education to be terribly on point. Mm. Uh, And I think... You know, it's funny. My education was so specialized. You know, I actually did a Bachelor of Accounting degree so that I could have as many credits as possible towards being able to write my CPA exam during my undergrad. And so that's relatively specialized, whereas I actually think there's a lot of merit to maybe even doing liberal arts for a couple of years and learning how to truly think, you know, and having a broader exposure. Uh, So... I think, long story short there, I don't see any evidence of most schools pumping out kind of great Hmm. broad thinkers, with the exception maybe of schools that do have really great co-op programs so I see this a little bit on the engineering side there's a university here called University of Waterloo that pumps out great engineering grads and while other um, in other schools you see kind of final year grads kind of still learning C++ which is a programming language out of a textbook Mm -hmm. in University of Waterloo you're being graded on building actual iPhone apps and your grade is based on you know how well they do out in the real world which strikes me as, you know, a far more practical skill set to go and get. So there are some exceptions to that.
0: So do you think that you could even say that an accounting degree is an impediment to be in this sort of environment? Well,
1: I don't I don't think so. And I'll say, you know, I should have thought of this earlier about your question and raised it for me. You know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I saw lots of CFOs who came from investment banking backgrounds. Mm-hmm and they were deal makers. And um, I've seen a move away from that to folks who have the nuts and bolts kind of accounting and financial reporting and actually have the CPA designation Who understand internal controls and how to implement them, who can be good stewards of the company's capital and be kind of a trusted right hand to the CEOs and boards. Like, as an example, when we... Were raising fresh books around, you know, the investors were joking that they were going to end up spending more time talking to me than to the CEO because <laughs> they know that, that you know, it's just you know, it was a big company, there's going to be lots of KPIs and stuff, and they're, they're going to know that, you know, I'd be the person who was on top of all those details and therefore I'd be the person they'd be speaking with more. Right. So I definitely It just strikes me as the right foundation, you know. Oh. Audit is boring as hell, but you learn... <laughs> I, I treated it as a way to learn about different companies in different industries. Right, right. So my friends in the big four would spend two months auditing accounts receivable of one company, whereas in the, that time, I would have done audits of, and reviews of three or four companies in their entirety. You know, right. If I spent two months looking at receivables for something, I would put a bullet in my head. <laughs> Let
0: me ask you this. Do you... Uh... You know, I'm just thinking about the cycle from, you know, startup to, you know, into venture and then to, you know, exit. Do you think there's uh, any time where you're going to see executives go through the full cycle or is it all going to be specialized? Is is it, you know, like you're like in your instance, you're going to, you know, you get out before the public exit or you get out before the, you know, do you think anybody is going to have that sort of long career anymore?
1: I think yes, but not in a finance role. Mm. I think that uh, you know, if your aspiration is to do a big board IPO, then there are first of all stakes are super high. You know, the bar to kind of go out and have institutional buyers, you know, be meaningful participants in that IPO. You know, there's a certain kind of minimum market value mm. to do that, and so the stakes are really high, and so it's precious few private cfos that grow up and go all the way you know usually kind of a year or six months before the offering you'll see a switch out that the cfo will Mm
0: -hmm. it's interesting and just as a final note um sort of the stupid uh, reporter question uh, i'm going to ask you is uh what what sort of advice would you give to um younger uh you know people coming out of, in the finance looking to get into the venture world or the startup world what would you what would what's one piece of advice you would give them
1: <laughs> just one huh that's tough
0: well no it can be three
1: <laughs> yeah well you know what so my wife's an executive coach and um half of her practice is uh, startup ceos and uh, off. often and by the way, I've in full disclosure. I, I have been and am a client of my wife. And <laughs> we we compartmentalize those roles. Uh, That's great. Quite successfully. But uh, the point of this is that you know, whenever uh, she, she advises me or other clients, I assume in terms of kind of making really big decisions, mm-hmm. the first place to go to is identifying what your values are and because that that's the stuff that stands the test of time right and that's the stuff that defines who we are and what truly matters to us and you know I went through that exercise when I was creating SurePath Capital Partners and I did it with her guidance and uh, you know the values that I identified through that process are actually front and center on the website now so that people know when they come this is who we are this is what what we stand for. This is what matters to us. right? And, you know, I would say for anyone at any stage of their career, if they can truly sit down either with a coach or themselves and, you know, really be introspective and identify what truly matters to them, then that's going to help them make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, some people want to get into VC because, they read TechCrunch too much and they hear about VCs all the time and they think it's glamorous and that, you know, they're going to be rich and powerful and you got to know what truly matters to you. You know, if you, if what matters to you is, you know, driving a fancy car and being really rich, venture is not the best way to get there. You know, venture is a get rich very slowly, if at all, career path. (laughs) Um so whereas if you're getting into it because you truly love advising entrepreneurs, you truly love the variety of kind of looking at different companies at different stages and different industries, you love kind of the financial intricacies of transactions. Actions. Like, if you love things that are kind of more fundamental and durable, then I think you're, you're going to be a lot more successful. So, kind of the importance of values is uh, definitely one kind of important thing. And um, I'd say, if I say one more thing, you know. I think many financial professionals live in a black and white world and I'm definitely guilty of that You know, where we see the world in a very black and white way and right. we assume there's kind of one right way to do things but if I've learned anything from my uh, time doing startups it's that anything's possible Yeah. You know? and uh, there's no one way there's no right or wrong uh, it's just, you know no one would have thought two years ago that you know the taxi industry would be disrupted the way Uber has disrupted it, or you know that Tesla is going to issue an update in the software in its cars this Thursday that's going to enable self-driving. You know, like it's just crazy, right. and uh, and we're still just getting started, and and so. That same kind of anything goes possibility that exists in the technology realm, I think, goes for career paths. You know, we can do, we can take any which way we choose. And the way to, and, and the way to choose then comes back to our most fundamental self and our most fundamental values.
0: Well, that's a great uh, point to end on. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks very much. Pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me. Take right. care. Thanks.